This morning, I would like to begin my message using a different metaphor than the chessboard. Over the last several weeks, we have been using the chessboard to illustrate the queen and the king and some of the participating players in the book of Esther. But this morning, what I'd like to use as an illustration is a deck of cards. When I was small, my mom and dad were part of a Saturday night bowling league. And this meant that my sister and I almost every Saturday night would spend the night with my grandparents. Now there was the weekly ritual of pulling out the uh, planter's peanuts, you know, the kind in the jar, the dry roasted. Uh, there was also the pulling out of the bag of the small orange peanut looking uh, circus candies that when you ate, you could kind of pull it out uh, about a foot from your mouth. And then there was on in the background, Lawrence Welk. But besides that activity, almost every Saturday night, we would pull out a deck of cards. And the deck of cards was to play the game 500 Rummy. Now, I don't know if you know how to play the game 500 Rummy, but the whole point of it is to either make a run or a set of matches of the different suits that are in the deck. And when you lay down either a set or a run, what is on the table counts as a certain amount of points, and you play until the first one that reaches 500. So a normal card is five points, a face card is 10 points, however, the ace was worth 15 points. So you were always wanting to try to get the ace. So you deal out seven cards apiece, and then you begin to take a look at your hand, and as you look at your hand, you see what's there that you can match up. Now, the hand that I just dealt to myself included a king, a nine, an ace, a 10, an eight, a four, and a three. Problem is, none of them are of the same suit. And so I'm going to wait until some of these things come up. And as I pick it up off the pile, I then have to lay it down as a run. Now, there is one thing here, though, that I always was a sucker to when I was a kid and it is always the ace. I have here the ace of spades. Now the ace, because it's worth so much, there is the tendency to hold on to that card, hoping that you get two more to lay down a run of three, or to try to get a set of four, and oh my goodness, you're almost you know a quarter of the way to uh, 500 rummy if you could make that type of lay down. The problem is, I was playing against my grandfather, H.V. Robinson, the Silver Fox. He not only knew how to play the game of cards, he knew how to play the player. And in the process of the game, his ability to be such a good card player was his ability to know what had already been played or what had already been picked up off the pile. And so, as we would play the game, I would be sitting here with this one ace in my hand, waiting for two more to pop up so I could lay it down, but my grandfather probably either had an ace or two in his hand, and he knew that I was never, ever, ever going to be able to lay down that set of aces. He knew how to play the game. I'm sitting here in ignorance, thinking that I'm going to get what I need. There's a big difference between playing the hand and playing the person. You see, my grandfather could win every hand if he wanted to. 
But he would let us win several hands along the way because it was the way to keep the game interesting and kept us motivated to finish the game. Well, he knew the unseen moments that were coming up really were the key to the game. So you don't just play the cards, you play the characters as well. Now back to the chessboard. Like my grandfather was a great card master, God is the great chess master. However, even though he could intervene at any given moment, he often lets the game play out. He knows what's happening behind the scenes. And there are millions of moves by free will human beings that are met by counter moves with God. Even though God could power up, he doesn't. And as he lets it play out, what we find is he draws out the next move in the heart of the people that are playing in this game. So that brings us to Esther chapter 6. Today, in this chapter, we see God is going to set up providentially. Remember several weeks back, we talked a little bit about the providence of God. That plays into this chapter as well. God knows how to draw out the next move of the characters here. And what we find is after Esther last week had entered into the presence of the king to request a banquet with not only Xerxes or Hasuerus and Haman, this is in between that first request for a banquet, which they sit down and have together, but she doesn't unveil that Haman has decreed to kill the Jews. Maybe that is out of fear. In fact, I think it is. But what we find is she requests a second banquet between herself and the king and Haman. And what we find taking place is these providential set of circumstances that happen between that first banquet she requests and the second banquet is God is orchestrating something quite remarkable. So last week, we left off the narrative with us waiting for this second banquet. And so as we read in chapter 5, Esther initially was filled with fear. But here is Haman. Haman, who felt because he was invited to the banquet, he was in a great position to request the king to not only hang Mordecai on the stake, but also exterminate the rest of the Jewish people. He felt power. Here is Esther who felt fear. Here is Haman who felt power. And what we find is that in chapter 6, the king felt restless. Let me read the first three verses of chapter 6. It says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Now think about this for a moment. The fate of the entire Jewish race 
is changed by the sleeplessness of a king. So here is this night, this interesting twist. That night, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. That night, not the previous night, not the next night, that night, in between these two banquets, what we find is he can't sleep. So he's tossing and he's turning. And so he decides, well, I'm going to have some of my stewards bring in some of the chronicles of my reign and have them read to me. That's as, probably as exciting as listening to the phone book be read. I mean, he thinks that it is going to put him back to sleep. So what we find is in the Persian Empire, the, uh, the history keepers were attached to the court and recorded the king's every move because we all know that he's going to have some presidential library built on his behalf later on. Now, what is amazing about this account is what is chosen from the chronicles that are going to be read. So this scroll is taken out and it is opened up and it's from five years previous, five years. And it talks about this plot of these two individuals to kill the king. Now think of this, out of all the years, out of all the scrolls that the king's servants could have chosen, they chose the exact year that contained this assassination plot. And of course, Mordecai was the one that revealed it. So the question comes up, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And the answer said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing has been done. There was no honor bestowed upon him for this great intervention on behalf of the king. Now they say that timing is everything. And what we're going to find is Haman's life is about to spiral downward. Haman is in the outer court by this time. It's morning. And as he walks toward the inner court, the king sees Haman and says, Hey, come on in here. Come on in here. I have a question to ask you. And that's found in verse 4. The king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he erected for him. His attendants answered, well, that's Haman that's out there in the court. Bring him on in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman is thinking that uh, the king is asking about how he wants to be honored because he's so puffed up, he's so narcissistic and so arrogant that he thinks that the king is talking about him. So notice what Haman recommends. He answers the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, a horse the king has ridden, and one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, lead him on the horse through the seats, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Did you notice? Here's what Haman recommends. Money and 
power and position. That's all he can think about. So he says, hey, let royal apparel be placed upon him. Put a royal crown on his head and go through the city on a royal animal and then make this royal proclamation that this is what the king does for the man he honors. And so the king says, hey, great. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe, the horse, and do just what you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. All of a sudden, this bombshell hits Haman. This is not about him at all. This is for Mordecai. What an ironic chapter this is. What irony that here is Haman, who feels that he is in the best position to do anything that he wants, so he recommends this over-the-top exaltation for the man that the king honors. However, what is transpiring is his own downfall here. And in this dark moment, what has happened is Haman is told that this is what is to be done for Mordecai the Jew. This is the one Haman hates. This is the one Haman wants to execute. This is the one that Haman absolutely wants to loathe. And so what we find is that Haman now must honor Mordecai. Haman now must lead Mordecai through the town. Haman now must proclaim, this is what is done for who the king honors. Can you see the twist? Can you see the irony? And here's my point. This chapter is talking about the irony of the invisible involvement of God in our lives. It's highly ironic and darkly humorous. In fact, it might be one of the most poignant reversals found in the entire Bible. These opening verses describe a series of random coincidences that initiate this reversal between Haman and Mordecai. Now, what's interesting, do you remember last week I mentioned that in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are extra chapters in the book of Esther. And what we find, this is found in the Apocrypha. So if you had a Catholic Bible or a Bible that had Apocrypha books in it, you could find to the, uh, in that section there the additions to the book of Esther. What we find is in the additions to the book of Esther, the narrator makes this very poignant point, and that is, it is the mighty one who took the king's sleep away. Okay? This just wasn't random. This is God's intervention. Now think of what the king could have done, though. Think of the fact that he can't sleep. And we've all had those insomnia moments. And so what do we do? We might get up, we might get a drink of water, we might turn on the TV, we might read a book, we might uh, do a number of things to try to get sleepy again and go back to bed. The king's choice of sleeping aid is quite ironic as well. 
rather than sending for one of the women in his harem who could have come in, could have comforted him and caused him to fall back to sleep. He doesn't. He calls for the chronicles of his reign. Oh my goodness. How ironic that he would call for these chronicles to be read to him and the exact scroll with the exact moment in which his life was saved was read to him. Often things that seem to be inconsequential at the moment are used by God to achieve higher purposes. This includes both righteous and evil deeds. Uh, these are those unseen moments in time. Those unseen moments in time in which God brings about his purpose through the free will of his subjects. However, on that night, I think that's the most important part of this whole chapter, the first two words of the chapter, that night, he calls for the chronicles, not a woman from his harem. That night, it is the exact scroll. That night, Mordecai is lifted into his vision that his life was at stake, and it was Mordecai's intervention that saved it. You know, Esther chapter 6 describes these seemingly coincidental actions, but they're not. They are those unseen moments in time where God is going to take our free will and our choices and our actions and continue to arrange the board for his overall purposes. The invisible involvement of God is mysterious, and most of all, it is unseen. We really don't recognize it until after the fact. Trusting God in His providence doesn't take away pain, doesn't take away trauma, doesn't take away fear, all of the things that Esther was feeling. It does not take away the anxiety of hearing a decree to exterminate an entire ethnic group. But what it does remind us is God is still on the throne. It reminds us that there is a throne above this throne. It reminds us that God, even when he can't be seen and can't be understood, is still reigning. So when I put a message together, I run across a lot of rather strange things that I think at times fit quite nicely into the main point that I'm trying to make. So what is my main point? My main point is this. There are unseen moments in time that can change the entire course or direction of something. And we would like to anticipate it. We would like to be able to play that hand out like my grandfather could play out a hand of cards, but we can't. For you see, ultimately, this invisible movement of God is only found as we live out our life a moment at a time. So one of these ironic things that I ran across this past week was a hymn that was titled, This is the Hymn of the Hungarian Galley Slaves. Never heard of such a thing. It is found in some hymnals, 
I looked at the one here at First Christian Church. It's not in there. Um, but it goes like this. I want you to listen to the verses of it. Lift your heads, O martyrs weeping. God our Maker still does reign. You are daily in God's keeping. God is with you in your pain. Rise and be of valiant heart, and with courage bear your part. Soon again God's arms will fold you to God's loving heart and hold you. Through the though the storms may rage and roll over the vast and fearful sea, though you cry from wretched toil, O oh my Savior, rescue me. Though it seems that God does sleep, hope and trust in God still keep. Calm your hearts, though they be quaking. God is faithful, not forsaking. Though in chains you now are grieving, though a tortured slave you die, martyrs, if you die believing, heaven's path shall open lie. Upward gaze and trust anew, God has not forsaken you. You are God's own people, surely. God will fold God's own securely. So that old hymn somehow captures this moment where we realize that God is still involved. And sometimes other people can recognize it. So the rest of the chapter goes on. And verse 11 says, So Haman got the robe and the horse, and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And I'm sure he was complaining about it not being fair. I'm sure he was complaining about the fact that that was what was supposed to be done for him, not Mordecai, but his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, listen, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, oh my gosh, can you imagine how that hit his ears? Your downfall has started. The king has elevated Mordecai, and you have built a stake to kill him. Your downfall has started. Since Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. What a fascinating comment. It's telling him we see the handwriting on the wall, to use another section of Scripture in the book of Daniel. You better wake up, Haman, because God's involved in this. Haman didn't want to believe it. I don't know how he would have reacted if this didn't happen. The last verse of the chapter says, And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Come on, it's time for that second banquet. Well, you think Haman would have said, wait, 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 time out. I don't want to go to that banquet now. But he was ushered off 
to that second banquet. And that is where it's going to be revealed about his plot. Remember, Mordecai revealed a plot of assassination against the king. Those two individuals were executed. Now this plot to exterminate the Jews is going to be revealed. And guess what? Haman is going to be executed on the very stake that he had built for Mordecai. So do you see all the irony? Do you see the twists and turns here? So I was wondering, why couldn't it break through to Haman that God is the one that is the people of the Jews are his pride and joy, the apple of his eye? I don't know. Maybe he's like that wayward son that the rock group Kansas sings about in Carry On My Wayward Son. If you hear the lyrics of that song, there's a lot of similarity to Haman. Listen, once I rose above the noise and confusion, just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion, I was soaring ever higher, but I flew too high. Though my eyes could see, I was still a blind man. Though my mind could think, I was still a madman. I hear the voices when I'm dreaming. I can hear them say, carry on, my wayward son. There will be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. In other words, he never did what Lent is calling us to do, to reflect and to repent. He just carries on. Then it goes on, it says, masquerading as a man with a reason. My charade is the event of the season. And if I claim to be a wise man, well, it surely means that I don't know. On a stormy sea of moving emotion, tossed about, I'm like a ship on the ocean. I set a course for the winds of fortune. But I can hear the voices say, and you could sing it, carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. If I just keep pushing ahead, if I just keep going the direction that I'm going, then this, carry on, you will always remember. Carry on, nothing equals the splendor. Now your life no longer empty. Surely heaven waits for you. Do you know people like that? They just keep pushing on ahead and they never stop to reflect. They never stop to repent. They never stop to think maybe this turn of fortune is God's providential way of causing me to think about my life and to make different priorities. Mm. That night, that night is the key to the chapter. There will be that special moment when the invisible involvement of God is in control, and you just don't know it. And it seems those unseen moments in time when God brings together a special set of circumstances involving a special set of people will continue to move the story forward. But remember that no matter how much power or position you might have, mm, you can't beat the card master. You can't outmaneuver the chess master because our God is a God of the intersections. He connects things that didn't look connectable when the timing is exactly right. And even though it might look wrong in the moment. 
It is God that is at work when circumstances look uncontrollable, when life looks unpredictable, and when sin looks unstoppable. Mm, there's that night. Even though you think you should have seen something happen long before now, remember, it might not be that night yet. The challenge is to carry on under the providential hand of God when it looks like it's not going to work out, but to go forward and humbly repent and humbly confess this. I don't know what to do and I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust you. Jesus had to do the very same thing in the desert. He humbled himself before the providential hand of God. He was completely dependent on the presence of God who in the moment was unseen. Maybe the writer of Proverbs needs to remind us. This proverb in 26.12 says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Chapter 6 seems to be inconsequential if you were to just pass by it quickly, but it's the turning point in the book because it tells us about that night, that night. So eventually the cards are all played out and God still has the winning hand. Eventually all the pieces on the chessboard are moved and in the end, what we find is a stalemate in some cases and a checkmate in others. So, here's what I'd like to do to close the service. There is, at the end of your liturgy, this little reminder, and let's use it as a closing prayer. God of wilderness and water, your son was baptized and tempted as we are. Guide us through this season that we may not avoid struggle, but be open to blessing through the cleansing depths of repentance and the heaven-rending words of the Spirit. God of mercy, your word was the sure defense of Jesus in his time of testing. Minister to us in the wilderness of our temptation, that we who have been set free from sin by Christ may serve you well into everlasting life. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this week. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Have a great week. God bless you.